I wonder if anyone here has made assumptions uh, about God when it came to an expected outcome. Have you ever thought God would act in a particular way when you did something for Him, uh, but you only to find out that that was not the case? Have you ever put God into an equation and assumed you knew what the outcome would be based on your actions? Well, today we are going to see that God doesn't always fit in with our tidy equations or our little boxes. No, He is far greater He is far more abundant, far more wise, far more majestic than any of those things, more than we could even think or imagine. And so we pick up with uh, continuing this series on the life of David and what's happened so far. We've skipped a bit. Well, we see that David at this point has been anointed as the king of Israel. We know that as a shepherd boy, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet, uh, but that was sort of a a looking forward. Uh, But now Saul has died, Jonathan has died, and the people come and anoint David as king of Israel. And David uh, takes the city of Jerusalem. He conquers it and, and kicks out the Jebusites who were occupying that city. And then he defeats the Philistines in a a big battle. And then we turn to chapter 6 and the events that take place here, where David gathers all the men uh, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant to bring it into the new capital, Jerusalem. And so we ask the question, what is the Ark? What is the Ark of God? What is the Ark of the Covenant? apart from what Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones have to say about the issue. What is the symbolism of this ark? Why is it important? You see, the ark served as a representation of the presence of God with his people. It reminded the people of who God was and what he had done. And it was to go with the people of Israel everywhere they went even into battle. And we see that the ark had been captured by the Philistines at some point before the reign of King Saul. Because of these two sons of Eli the priest, if you remember, Eli is the one who takes Samuel into his house and then judgment comes on Eli because of these two sons who... Uh, the Israelites are losing a battle, and they think, let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle so that we can win. They're looking at the Ark of the Covenant as if it were a a lucky charm. Amen. You can't treat or force God into an equation. You can't take something of God and force it in there and make it do what you want it to do. That's not how he works. And so, contrary to what they thought would happen, the ark actually gets captured at this point, captured by the Philistines. But when the ark 
of the covenant, when the ark of God goes into the cave where they keep the gods of the Philistines, their god keeps toppling over. And so Dagon falls, and he breaks his arms off, and he falls again the next day, and his head comes off. And everywhere they take the ark, whatever city it goes to, the Philistines that live in that city all of a sudden are covered in tumors. Don't bring it to my city. Because, you see, God is not a God who can be captured by an enemy. Finally, the Philistines are tired of this thing, and so they load it onto a cart, and they ship it back to the Israelites. And even when the Israelites receive the ark back, they're so fascinated with this sort of lucky charm that some of the men look into the ark, and those men's lives are taken. And so frightened, the Israelites take the ark to Kiriath-Jerim, and that is where they leave it. And so Saul is anointed king of Israel, and does Saul bring the ark out uh, to remind the people of the presence of God? Does Saul bring the ark out to show that he is not the total authority, but that he is beholden to another authority? No. Saul leaves the ark in Kiriath-Jerim, and in turn, he thinks he leaves God there. But David is anointed king, and what does he do? He wants the Ark of the Covenant brought to the new capital to show that God is the God of the Israelites. What a great message to send to the people. What a perfect way to start your reign. What a, what a great way to inaugurate your new capital city. And so all the preparations are made. And the ark comes out of Kiriath-Jerim, and we read in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. This is a day of celebration. We're celebrating God and the the victory that he has given us over the Philistines. We're celebrating the way that he has protected us through the years. We are celebrating the fact that he has provided for us this new city, this new capital. We're celebrating that he has provided for us a king, and the king that was misleading us is now gone, and this new king is here And the ark with the cart makes its way up to Jerusalem. Then we read verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, 
Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What the heck is happening here? Why? Why would, when everything seems to be good and for God's glory, would God do this? Why, when David has made a good decision to bring the ark to Jerusalem, does God do this? The Bible says God's anger burned against Uzzah because he touched the ark. And I think there's a misunderstanding of the ark here. And even more so, there's a misunderstanding of who God is. Because he is not just another god like Dagon of the Philistines. He is not like Baal. He is not like any of the other gods that have come and gone, ones that only take the form of wood and stone and can do nothing, ones that can be captured by enemy armies with no consequences, ones that do not point to any real fulfillment, future fulfillment. This is Yahweh, the creator of the universe the author of all life, the sustainer of the universe, the one who chose a weak people group and made them mighty for his glory, the one who is right and just in all that he does. He does no wrong. He is blameless and faultless and righteous. He is holy. He's not just holy. He is holy, 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 meaning he is other. He is separate. He is different from his creation in that he is transcendent and superior, and therefore he is worthy of honor and of reverence and of adoration and of worship. You see, the Israelites were rejoicing this day because they were happy to see the ark coming to the city of Jerusalem. But they had allowed compromise and sin to settle into their lives. They're happy to have the big, powerful God who helps them defeat the Philistines and the Jebusites. But when it comes to the day-to-day affairs of life, they put him on the back shelf. And they bring him out on Sunday, or in their case, they bring him out on Saturday. They're forgetting who he was and what he has called them to and from. Called to serve and follow him and called from sin and looking like all the other communities around them. Well, how do we know that they had forgotten? Well, you can look one chapter back in 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 13. It says, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. According to Deuteronomy, a king is not to uh, accumulate wives. And as the saying is, as the king goes, so I would assume the kingdom It's a reflection that they were looking and wanting to look like all the kingdoms that surrounded them. And it started with their king. And then look at how the ark is being transported on a cart. 
Well, what's wrong with that? Anyone know? That's not how it's supposed to be transported. It's supposed to look like this. Brackets on all the sides so that these poles can go in so the ark isn't touched, it's carried. It's supposed to be carried by the Levites, the the priests, the ones who represent man to God, who perform the sacrifice of sin atonement. They're the ones who carry the holy things. They were to carry the ark which represented to the people the presence of God. It also reminded them of who he was and who he had been and who he would be in the future. But when the ark was captured and the Philistines wanted to get rid of the ark, they didn't know what those brackets were for. They didn't know that the poles went in there. And so they loaded on a cart. I'd hate to be the guy that was volunteered to load it on the cart. So the Philistines give it back to the Israelites, and David has chosen that method on the cart of transportation over the prescribed method given in Numbers chapter 4. So when the oxen stumbles and the ark is falling, and Uzzah reaches out to stop the ark from falling, and his sinful hands touch the ark which represented the holy God he struck dead. How much is this like us? We forget as Christians that we are called, that we are set apart, we are holy, not that we are perfect, but holy meaning other, different. But how much do we seek to look like those around us, those kingdoms around us, those neighbors, those people in our community? And so we compromise, as David and the Israelites did. We forget who we are, and we start taking directions and narrative from our world and from society and from our communities. How many parents feel they need to have their kids in every single sport or extracurricular activity so that your kids look like all the other kids? And so that... You as a parent look like all the other parents. Now, I'm not saying I want you to be weird. But what happens when these kids are so weighed down with practices and school and all these things? What happens to the study of God's Word? What happens to family time together? It doesn't look set apart. It doesn't look different from all the other kingdoms, from all the other families, from all the other neighborhoods. And single people socializing in in all the wrong places or watching Netflix for countless hours. It doesn't look different. It doesn't look set apart. Now, I'm aware that there are some here today who hear this and say, Yes, whatever the Lord does is good and right, even if I don't understand it. And there are people here today who might be saying, what the heck was that? Why did Uzzah die? 
That doesn't sound like a loving, gracious, merciful God. That's okay. That's a good question to be asking. I'm not going to chastise you for that. That's why we gather here on Sundays. That's why we gather in small group Bible studies throughout the week to deal with these questions. And we turn to God's Word and search for these answers and applying it to our lives. Because we, as the body of Christ, seek to grow in the knowledge of salvation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing here this morning. The word disciple means learner. And as far as I know, learner is not a once time. It's continual. We're always learning. Let's learn together. Why would God take the life of this seemingly innocent man? because he's not innocent. Uzzah's heart and his hands are sinful. And in his effort to steady something, he broke a law of God which was created which said, do not touch the ark. What I want you to leave here today with is not this sense of, I need to try harder. I need to wake up tomorrow morning and I need to try to be a better person. I need to work a little harder. I need to, I need to try harder. I need to push myself. I need to, I need to get up and do better. Uh, I don't want you to leave here thinking, I need to not get caught doing something stupid. I need to not get caught doing something stupid. Don't do something stupid. I don't want you to leave here thinking, God is really arbitrary in the way that he takes life. I want you to leave this place this morning amazed and awed at the holiness of God. You can know that when God says he is loving, that he is far more loving than you will ever comprehend. That when God says he is merciful, he is far more merciful than you could ever imagine. That when God says he is just, he is far more just than you would ever think. Because I don't want to worship the God who says he is those things and then he compromises or he is unsteady or he is unpredictable or he is unknowable. He doesn't deceive. He is true to who he says he is. That is the God we worship, and that is the God whose character never changes. Verse 8. David was angry because the Lord's wrath was, had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. This event was in mind when David wrote Psalm 24. Let me read part of it to you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
Who may stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands? Who has a pure heart? Who has not lifted their soul to an idol or sworn by what is false? Who can get this ark into Jerusalem? It's not David. It's not any of the Israelites. It's certainly not Uzzah. It's not any of us. And why are these the requirements? Because these describe God himself. He is holy. He is separate. He is totally committed to purity. And if you want to stand before God and not be burned up by his purity and not be struck down by his righteousness, if you want to know this God and live beyond judgment day with him forever in glory, then you need to be like him. You have to be completely holy. You have to be completely pure. You have to be totally honest. And here's the bad news. That's none of us. And if you think it is, let's have a chat after. Who will ever be able to get up that holy hill? You'd be safer swimming in the ocean with sharks with fish blood all around you than to come before the holy God the way that we are. But you see, the death of Uzzah predicts the death of another man who died willingly because God is holy. On the cross, the absolute holiness and the transforming grace of Jesus Christ meet. Holiness required sin be dealt with, grace demanded a sacrifice be made, and God did both. Christ is the only one who can ascend the mountain of Psalm 24. He's the only one with clean hands. He's the only one with a pure heart. He's the only one who's never sworn falsely. And it is through him that we have access to the holy God. Amen belongs here. And so how does David respond? Verses 12 to 15. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, it's not on a cart anymore, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. 
He understands the holiness of God, and he responds rightly. In fact, David seems so moved by the event and this uh, new appreciation of God that he doesn't wear his kingly robes that would have drawn attention to him. But instead, he wears a priest's garment, and not an elaborate one, but a humble one. And he dances before the Lord with joy. But, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David's wife, Michal, sees him dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Why would she do that? Michal does not understand the joy of humility. She thinks this humility aspect that David has taken is unbecoming of a king. A king should act in a certain way. A king should dress in a certain way, and anything less is undignified. You see, this is the way her father thought. That's why she's described as Michal, the daughter of Saul, not Michal, the wife of David. King Saul thought, if I look the part, if I act dignified in public... then all will be right. And I think we think the way King Saul does. If I act in a certain way in public, if I wear my mask just right, if I wear the clothes that makes everything look like it's fine, then everything will be fine. And I think we teach that to our children as well. But here's the thing. Unless God is seated on the throne of your heart... All of that is for show. It's all a lie. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They don't put up pretensions. They are open and honest about their need for a Savior. They do not have clean hands. They do not have pure hearts. And David tells Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Your father didn't understand humility. And so I was chosen over him. And because God is holy and mighty and other and worthy and he still chose me and I am none of those things, then I will humiliate myself before him and before my people that we would be reminded and remember who it is exactly that deserves the honor and the praise and the glory. Because Michal... I don't have clean hands to carry the ark. I don't have a pure heart to touch the ark. But he still makes a way available to him. 
And there will come one who will humiliate himself even more than I. Who will leave heaven and the majesty of heaven and come to earth as a man. And he will be the only one with clean hands and he will be the only one with a pure heart. And he will make an eternal way possible to the Father through his sacrifice, through his offering of himself. And that is the good news. The bad news, none of us are holy or righteous to come before God. But because of Jesus and through his sacrifice, we can be called children of God. And with that, we are separate, and we are other, and we are holy, and we are different. Not of our own doing, not because we were able to keep the ark from slipping, but because of what Christ did for you and for me. So the next time you expect God to do something because of what you did for him, you can humbly rejoice because he is holy and he knows what is best. He's proved it through Christ. Who else would you trust? Let's pray. Father, we confess that often we put these unfair, unrealistic, unbiblical expectations on you. And then we doubt you or we're angry with you because you didn't do what we wanted you to do as if we are the ones on the throne. And yet, even despite all that, you sent your son down, giving up his life willingly. I mean, we may come to him and confess our sins and be made right because none of us have the heart or the hands to touch the ark. But he does. And now we can be made pure and have clean hands because of him because we can put our identity in him and him alone. And so, Father, we ask that you would remind us of that holiness, of how holy you are, how righteous you are, how unworthy we are, but how we can still have access to you through him. What great news that is. It's the best news in the world. Use us this week, Father, reminding ourselves of these truths and going out in your power. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.